The Athletic. Another 2023 MotoGP weekend and another massive swing in this ridiculously brilliant title battle that we've ended up with in a season that really didn't look like it was going that way at all. For the first half of the Indonesian Grand Prix weekend, it looked like everything was slipping away from Pekka Banyai even more than it had been over recent weeks. And then suddenly when Jorge Martin has everything in his hands, he throws it all away. I'm Matt Beer. This is the Race MotoGP podcast. Joining me are Simon Patterson and Val Harunchi as usual. And I think we should start with the... Uh, Pecco going downwards, Martin going upwards part of the weekend. Let's be chronological and then we'll uh, we'll flip to what happened in the end. So things started to slip away from Banyaya very early in the Mandalik weekend. Val, do you want to take us through the, the sort of slide he was on initially? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it didn't look that bad on Friday, but when push came to shove, he basically left himself one do or die lap to end Friday's main practice session, the hour long one that determines whether you get to Q2 immediately or don't. And that lap looked plenty good enough. And then he made a random mistake towards the end of it. And suddenly that was that. And he's going to Q1, which is always nervy. Even honestly, like even if you're the fastest rider in the weekend, it's it's nervy because Q1 is quite the dogfight always. So he sounded very confident that he'd make it out of Q1. He was more worried about using up the extra tire and, you know, sort of not being as competitive as he as he would like to be in Q2. But instead, turned out he just, he didn't even make it out of Q1. There were other Ducatis in that session. Luca Marini topped it. And Inea Bastianini, his teammate, uh, picked off Bagnaia at the last seconds. So Bagnaia was resigned to, to starting both races in 13th. Uh, Martin himself didn't didn't do a great qualifying, so his was a bit messy. He crashed, so he had to use a suboptimal front tire for his second run. Uh, still put himself sixth on the grid. In the sprint, though, Martin, despite even not really getting a particularly good start, just one by one, fairly easily worked his way through to the front, won the, won the sprint race, whereas Bagnaia basically spent the entire time stuck behind Bastianini to, to the point where it was so visible that team order started coming up as an idea um and then on on you know on sunday there was much reason to maybe expect not quite the same but still you know every reason to expect another another swing in in jorge martin's favor especially when the start this time martin didn't even have to do his methodical one by one thing because he immediately just went to the lead from from sixth on the grid because he was sixth on the grid and then even Maybe coming into the breaking at turn one, or even before, he was already in the lead. Like it was, it was obvious immediately that he was taking the lead, uh, which is the kind of start that I think really has only been available to KTM this season more than anything. But now, with what Ducati has done to its to its launch devices for the work spikes, it seems to it seems to sometimes really work out for both Martin and Banyaya. So at 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 that point, it looked like we definitively have not only a new championship favorite but that Banyaya really just might be in a hole even if he recovers well enough and it looked that way until lap 13 in which Martin now three seconds up the road from Maverick Vinales who put up an early fight but didn't really have the pace to run with him ran wide coming into the turn 10 that's proven very very treacherous all throughout the weekend didn't crash there just ran a little wide says he picked up a bit of dirt on the front tire because again, a big factor this weekend was that the track was pretty good on the racing line, but very dusty and dirty off the racing line. It was just 
because it's not being cleaned. How is it being cleaned? Because nobody's running there. Picked out a bit of dirt, went into turn 11, and just tucked the front immediately, was out of the race then and there. Um, yeah, it was it was that kind of weekend where it sort of it turned in one moment without really there being a big performance turnaround. I don't think Pekka Banya was ever in a, like a huge performance hole, but he like a couple of moments put him really on the back foot. And then one Martin moment basically erased all of that. And I, I, I still think that, you know, Martin's talking a big talk after, after crashing out because, you know, he's bigging up his performance, obviously, and the fact that, you know, mistakes happen, but this is the kind of pace he had during the weekend. I do, I, I think he's right, probably. But at the same time, you, there is, it is impossible to be fast enough to not feel a 30-point swing. And that's what it was. It was a 30-point swing. 25 lost, plus an extra five to Banyaya. Uh, I don't think this championship is being decided by 30 points. I think the gap will be probably less. And if if it's by less than 30 points and Banya is the one who wins it, well, then this is this is the def- defining moment of, of the season. I mean, this is the moment that I've talked about before in the podcast, about worrying that was going to come the bit where Martin's sort of form dipped for the first time and we have to see how he reacts to it and, and see what comes next. Um, he has to come out in Phillip Island swinging hard. He can't let this sort of get to him. He can't, you know, he has to do what Bagnaya has done the last few weeks whenever things have been a bit rough on his side and be strong from it because, I mean, if he doesn't, it's just going to crumble away from him right now. And... He was in a position where everything he was doing, he was doing right. And it was Bagnaya that was under pressure and it was Bagnaya that that had to be beating him. Well, with five race weekends left, we're now in a position where Bagnaya doesn't actually have to be beating him every weekend. He just has to be sitting in second behind him, which is what he's been doing the last few weeks while, uh, you know, while Martin's been closing down that lead. It's, yeah, it's... Feels like a really, really significant moment in the championship today. Whenever we saw that shot of him walking away from the bike, it felt like, oh, wow, this is this is Pecos to lose again all of a sudden. And it, it, it hasn't really felt like that for a long time. Um, Martin afterwards, to his credit, was, was, you know, we've seen him of tough days in the past and he either doesn't turn up to do his media sessions or he does turn up and he's quite surly and doesn't say much in it. He turned up today, he was personable, he was witty, he was funny. He tried to laugh it off. He tried to play it cool. So, you know, maybe we are going to see that he comes out in Phillip Island again and, and can be quite confident and quite comfortable. Um, but it's, yeah, it's definitely not the time to dip a little bit of form, especially when we're going to Phillip Island, which is a circuit, you know, hasn't particularly been Ducati friendly in the past and is one of those places where you almost expect a Ducati to not win because it turns into a bit of a mixed bag. Um, that's going to put a bit more pressure on. It's going to make it a bit more complicated. You know, it's it's not going to be Val sh- sort of shaking his head a little bit at me, but I, the, the point I'm trying to make is it's it's not necessarily going to be three Ducatis fighting it out for the podium the way it has been for the last four or five races. There's going to be a few wild cards in the mix and it's just going to be a bit more complicated than a, a Bagnaya versus Martin fight at the front for the win. No, I'm, just, I'm, I'm shaking my head because uh, I just, I, I don't think it's 
you know, there's a difference between it being like an assumed Ducati victory, which is not, but I think it is, it has become a much, much better Ducati track than it used to, not just relative to what it was, but I think relative to other tracks, for some reason, something's happened as of late where like their performance in Phillip Island has arguably improved maybe more than anywhere else. So that, that was my sort of my thinking. I think the reason this doesn't feel particularly definitive for me yet is partly timing. But we've still got five Grand Prix weekends, so 10 races, so a lot of points on the table. That if, if this had happened with one round to go, two rounds to go, I think, yeah, that is too big a swing to get back without something mad happening now. So, yeah, there's, there's pure maths that make me think this has got a few more twists to come yet. But also the characters involved in this and the type of riders they are. Okay, we've gone quite a long time without Martin doing anything like this, but he used to do this a lot. Like this time last year on podcasts, I was predictably moaning about Martin crashing bikes out the lead and just intimating he was letting me down because I used to have so much faith in him, which you two have, uh, rightly shot me down for quite often. He hasn't done a lot of that this season. He's looked, uh, he's, he's lived up to that slightly strange Martinator nickname. He's taken control when he's needed to. And looked flawless, but uh, you know, on Sunday in Indonesia, he he did a very Martin thing of when not under much pressure for the lead, letting the bike get away from him. Now we're in this position at all though, because Banyai has done loads of that kind of thing on and off through the year. In a year, he could be dominating easily as the person who is the only fit rider in the f- best factory team on the grid. So Peko's got more of these moments in him. Martin looks like he might have after all later this season I, i've still got no idea which way this one's gonna go well one thing that the bagnaya spoke about at, at a fair bit of length this afternoon after the race um you know riders tend to do this sometimes they get injured they carry an injury and they're telling the media telling the press and maybe telling their team sometimes as well that oh no no i'm fine i'm fine it's healed up it's healed up he kind of opened up a bit tonight and announced that this is the first weekend since Le Mans where he started the weekend feeling fully fit because uh, he, he crashed back at the early part of the season. He broke a wrist, he broke an ankle. He says he carried those injuries basically all the way through into the summer break and out of it again and was just starting to get back to feeling normal whenever he crashed again in, in Barcelona, had that huge uh, crack, you know, got ran over, got massive hematoma in his leg. And it's taken until now for that to kind of clear up and to feel, you know, like he says, 100% fully fit, ready to go. And that, that could be a convenient excuse, um, but it also coincides really well with his form. You know, it, 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 matches the races where he's not been performing the way that he wasn't at other points in the season. So maybe that is an advantage for him. Maybe that is something that we're going to see him take into the next few rounds, make less mistakes because he's feeling fitter and more comfortable on the bike again um, and and start to perform the way that he did at the opening part of the year. Maybe it's not. Maybe, you know, it's completely not the case at all. But we'll see. I can see the logic of that in that, you know, for, for a MotoGP rider, it's not just about the stamina element of riding with an injury. It's about the whole body position element, the balance on the bike, the ergonomics. If your body is not where you want it to be and you're having to compensate for for an injury, that that could actually affect your one lap pace as much as anything else, couldn't it? Although this weekend with what the VR46 riders were doing with their recently restapled collarbones, it almost, ha- almost seemed to have the opposite effect. Luca Marini in particular, super fast this weekend on his return on his return from injury but 
yeah, going into these final few races, and I, I like I say, I have got no idea what to expect from either of these two next. I see Banyai's point about how not being fully fit, but I also think Banyai's had enough odd wobbly moments over his three years of being a title contender, regardless of of fitness, and this could go go anywhere yet. Um, Val, I'll come back to you on Martin as well, though, because after you heard him talking post race about how it was just statistics, this crash it didn't really mean anything. You know, sometimes crashes happen. You were fairly dismissive of that yourself in terms of going that that's fine, but you can't ignore the fact you just binned off a potential potentially much bigger championship lead. Yes, but I, I, I will also I also counter that with the fact that I, I don't think Banyai should ignore that. And I wasn't when I say wasn't terribly impressed, I sound like a some sort of strict teacher or huge bore and talk about <laughs> whatever, decorum, who actually cares. But I wasn't I wasn't entirely vibing with not just, you know, his celebration of cupping the ear to the crowd at the end of the race, but then his post-race explanation of that celebration of how people have been talking too early and it's better to, to you know, to wait after the championship is over and after the weekend is over to talk. And he, he told Simon that this isn't addressed to anyone in particular, but usually when you say something like that, it's because you've read some specific line that's really got to you. And my suspicion is that the line that he's read is Mark Marquez saying that uh, this is the pressure of leading, defending a championship, getting to 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 Banyaya, and this is this this is showing Banyaya that to defend the championship can even be harder than to win it. And going by Simon's reaction just now, I think that's his reading of the his reading of the situation. One hundred percent. That's exactly who he was talking about. Yeah. But uh, look, it's all well and good to to be you know loud and beat your chest at the end of the at the end of the weekend, especially when you've come through from thirteenth to win in a in a very very good ride, no doubt about it, very good ride. But Martin had him covered this weekend, like a very very noticeably so in terms in terms of raw performance, and just the normal rest of that race, Jorge Martin exits. Australia with a what is it a twelve point lead at this point? Oh, exits sorry, exits Indonesia with with a twelve point lead, and I don't think Banyai should be really bigging himself up after what happened. I'm just because first of all, he used to have a sixty five point lead. Now it's eighteen. So yeah, mm, uh, but also just this is a gift, and he should be treating this as a gift more than some sort of triumph. On his part, at least I think so. It was a very, again, very, very good ride from 13th to 1st. And it would have been a very good ride from 13th to 2nd anyway. It was a spectacular damage limitation that actually turned into a great, great win. But it really took a proper massive favor. And it's not it's not the kind of weekend he can afford to have basically again this season. Because in another, in another running of a weekend like this, Martin scores 37. So just to to kind of elaborate on what Val said about how good a race this was for Bagnaia, because we haven't actually, I don't think we've really touched on that enough. To come from 13th to the win in MotoGP right now is a difficult proposition. To do it on a circuit like Lombok that's not used very often, that is really, really dirty and dusty and treacherous off a very narrow racing line that you have to dive off of to make overtakes, um, to make that those sort of 10 passes that he needed to make to get to P1 is uh, is a really exceptional job. He, he did something really special. And I think if we'd seen the race finish with him P2 
to Martin, I think he would still have been sort of punching his chest and, and waving his arms on the way in because it would have still have been a massive exercise and damage limitation. The fact that Martin messed it up and, and made it so much better is just the, the sort of the cherry on top of a really, really good Sunday after you know a really tough weekend that I think he'll put down to Michelin bringing a new rear tire and him being a bit slow to adapt to changes and having to work with that tire. Um, it, it could be with Phillip Island, you know, for all the things we've said about Phillip Island, it, it could be that the next weekend where we're going to see a really, really important championship sort of head-to-head scrap, a really, really big next step in this battle is going to be the weekend after in Thailand because that's the final race of the season where Michelin bring the the, the high-temperature construction tyre that we were using this weekend and have used it a few other places where Bagnaya hasn't been as quick. You know, he came to India as well and he struggled with it there. Um, he struggled with it this weekend. He struggled adapting to it. So I think if he can leave Thailand still with the championship lead, then I'll, I'll put my money at that point on, on Peko Bagnaya being the 2023 champion. Ah, interesting. Yeah, there's, there's, it's, we're at a point now where there's so many little nuances around tyre choice and how the, the, the snowball effect of something not going quite your way or or an error, particularly with one qualifying session, setting two grids now as well. Once once Pecco had his tiny wobble on that one lap on Friday that put him into Q1, then wasn't quite fast enough to get out of Q1, it could have set both weekends off, both races off so, so badly. I during the, You were making the point you just made there during the race, Simon, you, even before Martin crashed. In fact, moments before Martin, Martin crashed, you said to us both that Pecco should be pretty happy with this. And I was kind of like, nah. And it was for this exact reason that this is something actually reader comments on rider rankings and driver rankings often often come to as well. Uh, a great comeback ride or drive is very impressive and worth celebrating. But if you've put yourself in the position to need that comeback ride or drive in the first point, you've still messed up at some point. And this weekend, Banyaya on that factory Ducati ended up not getting out of Q1 yes. and then not making particularly spectacular progress in the sprint. You know, that wasn't great. And... That was my thought when he was in second. I was like, yeah, this is this is superb. This is what he had to do. This is like getting himself together, showing some champion's composure to to turn this into a, a kind of damage limitation exercise. But his his takeaway from the weekend should be more along the lines of few than than yay. You know, he was still, like Val said, outpaced by by Martin. Obviously that all changed when Martin crashed and Peko can take can take great heart from the fact that Martin's shown he is still capable of doing that sort of thing. When in a race lead, he can take great heart from his comeback ride and from this new points cushion he's got. But it still wouldn't surprise me to get to Philip Island next weekend and see Martin just outpace Banyaya again and there's still enough races left that yeah, he can't afford to he can't afford to finish second every time, can he? There's still too no, much. No, yeah, no, no. no, but not by a long way. We've still we've still got a third of an old school season left. So yeah, I, I'm in the Peko shouldn't be beating his chest too much unless it's in pure relief camp after that one. As is traditional in this podcast, we either bang on for ages about the race or we bang on for ages about Mark Marquez at the start. And then remember, we should mention the other one of those two pod topics that we haven't done yet. Uh, so it's Marquez time now. Now, we went into this week knowing that he was leaving Honda, assuming he was joining 
Christina Ducati, but that not being official yet. It became official right at the start of the Mandalik weekend. And Marquez talked on the records for the first time about why he was leaving Honda, why he was joining Grissini. We've got a few loose ends to chat about that were tied up when Marquez spoke about this. But actually, the most interesting Marquez rider market saga thing from the Mandalika weekend was what Honda's going to do next, because this is where there's a curveball coming, it turns out. Uh, one that I'm not that impressed by, but we'll get onto my opinion after these two. So... It had been logical to assume that given Honda had already signed Johan Zarco to LCR and Zarco had made a very big deal of going, I want to help turn Honda around. Maybe there'll be a Repsol ride one day if Marquez moves on. Marquez moving on sooner than expected means Honda just moves Zarco up alongside Johan Mir and that's Repsol sorted and they find someone else to slot in at LCR. But maybe it's not that simple. It seems like Honda's going shopping elsewhere and Zarco might be at LCR after all. So... Simon, run us through the state of play with Honda's search for a post-market solution and give us your take on, on what should be happening. Um, so simply put, uh, we know that, that LCR Honda boss Lucio Giaconello really wants Sarko to stay um, because he sees you know the prospect of bringing in sponsors as being easier with a name like Johan Sarko attached to the team, which makes a lot of sense. Um, Giaconello has history of bringing in big French sponsors with a French rider because he ran Randy Dupunier really successfully for years in that team. He has already, I'm sure, started making plans for how, you know, the outfit is going to look next year and he might even have signed some deals for it. So he wants Zarco to stay. And Honda, it seems, have gone shopping through the paddock and plucked out two names that, I don't really understand their interest in at least one of them. Because uh, they've went to their Prilia garages and said, hey, Miguel Oliveira, hello, Maverick Vinales, would you like to ride a Honda? And, well, it seems, the, the Vinales thing seems much less certain. I think he is quite happy where he is. And, and this weekend's prom, uh, results for him should have kind of reassured him a little bit that this isn't the time to be walking away from Prilia. But it, it sounds like, Oliveira's head's been turned a little bit. Um, Aprilia bosses have insisted to me that he has a contract that's airtight. Oliveira has insisted that he has a contract which isn't airtight and has an escape clause in it. Um, Honda suddenly have a lot of money to go shopping with because they were paying Mark Marquez 25 million euros a season. And that you know, that's now free cash to spend on next year, essentially, because they're not going to pay him to go and ride a Ducati. So they've got a lot of money to buy a rider out of a contract should they want to. But for me, the, the question is really, why would you want to? Why why would you want to take Miguel Oliveira um, from a satellite Aprilia, put him on a new bike, start the learning process over again, and, and probably more importantly than anything else, Take a rider whose only interest in riding for you really is financial. When you've got Johan Zarco, who has already turned down a better bike to go and ride at Honda because he wants to be part of their development process. He wants to make that bike better. He wants to be a Repsol Honda rider. You know, that was his goal for 2025 anyway, before we knew Marquez was leaving at the end of this season. He really wants to help Honda work. And they've kind of snubbed their nose at him and gone looking elsewhere. Um, it, it, you know, it means that you end up with a rider who maybe isn't fully motivated in your team. It means that you end up with a rider in your satellite team who you're relying on to do a lot of your development work, who's already not very happy with you. And if Luke Joe Chacanello is worried about it, 
then, you know, just give him half of Marquez's salary and have Honda be the title sponsor of, of his team as well next year because they can afford to do it now. They've got the money to do it. They, they can make everyone involved in this situation quite content and have a good team for next year. Or they can really, really annoy Aprilia. They could bring out a rider who, you know, isn't someone that I would have as my first pick simply because, you know, he's already somewhere else and seemingly quite happy there until he had his head turned. Um, yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And, and, you know, replacing Zarco at LCR is an easy option as well. There's there's loads of people that they can drop in there um, who won't have the same pressure on them as, as a Repsol Honda rider would have. So this, this one has actually annoyed me a little bit. And it's not my business to be annoyed by Honda's decisions or not, but I just... the. The, the logic escapes me too much. Now, I'm, I'm not like an enormous Zarco super fan. I'm not saying saying that you're missing out on a rider who's going to take you to the world title there. You know, okay, I get it. He's He has quite invisible patches of a season he's in one at the moment. He has never won a MotoGP race. KTM was a disaster when he last tried to turn a, turn a factory around. So yeah, Zarco is not a, a nailed-on surefire. This is the person you definitely need. However... Honda's got a lot of things to rebuild and to stabilize and get and get right. It's got a rider in Mir who is a proven world champion. Zarko has proven his development credentials as well, and he really, really wants to be there. Stick those two together, calm everything down for a bit, let them get on with it and see what happens. And like you say, I, I see Chechenello's point, but you're a satellite team. This is this, you're at the risk of this happening. He knows that. And then the riders they're chasing. Vignales still hasn't won on the Aprilia that Alicia Spargaro keeps, keeps you know, has won a couple of times on. Still, Vignales is the one who's not actually getting it done when the opportunities arise in that team. Oliveira has won a bunch of Grand Prix. Like today. Yes, indeed. Well, yeah. I, Vignales has a strong weekend, admittedly. I'm saying that at potentially the wrong time, but I'm still not convinced that Vignales is, <laughs> is the person you'd chuck on a Repsol Honda yeah. at all in this situation. Oliveira has won some Grand Prix, most of them in, in the rain. I I used to really rate Oliveira. I still do it his best. But again, he's not a particularly safe or surefire bet. You don't go, oh yeah, that's a nailed on. Definitely this will work. This is worth causing a lot of upset for. It, you, you don't know what performance you're going to get with Oliveira. And I don't think, I know he's had injuries this season that have disrupted it, but I don't, I don't think he's proved much at RNF particularly either. And for both of them, for Vinales and Oliveira, Aprilia is really going places at the moment. Most of the hard work there has been done. Stick around and take the benefit of that. Vinales is already in the factory team. Oliveira, as the lead rider in the satellite team, should be thinking, well, Espargo is going to retire quite soon, potentially. Vinales still doesn't want to race at this team. I've got to make sure that I'm clearly the best next option for this improving factory that can win races and has a really sweet handling bike rather than going to this high-profile, big-money orange mess. I, none of it makes enough sense to me to be worth the hassle that is at risk of being created. So I'm now going to stop this rant. Um, Simon, you've put your hand up. I will hear what you've got to say first. But Val, I think you're slightly more sympathetic to Honda than I am. But Simon, you, you get in first. I, I think it should be an editorial decision from now on to just refer to Honda as the big orange mess. Um, <laughs> the... the uh, the thing for me is, if you measure up Oliveira versus Zarco and ask me which one of them has the most chance of winning a race on a Honda, it's Oliveira. But if you measure up Oliveira and Zarco and ask me which one of them has the most chance of helping Juan Mir win a title on a Honda, it's definitely Zarco. 
and, and Honda has to be looking at that big picture. You know, they they should be looking as at Juan Mir in five years' time being their next world champion instead of, you know, kind of flapping around trying to win races with Miguel Oliveira at the minute. I mean, I'm, I'm much more sympathetic to, to both Honda's logic and Oliveira's logic and even the idea of Vinales going to Honda than any of you. I think I think y'all are being needlessly negative about this whole prospect. <laughs> makes perfect sense to me. To start things off, I, I think the Lucio Tichinello factor is being massively downplayed here. They're gonna they're gonna take his coveted price signing, and it's not just about sponsors. It's going to be another write-off season for a team that I think rightly believes itself to be one of MotoGP's best satellite outfits that is already saddled with a bike that's a hunk of garbage. So. Why add insult to injury when you already aren't providing them great equipment? Now you take away the rider that Lucio worked so hard to get after the other rider that Lucio presumably worked quite hard to get, won a race, then immediately got injured and now immediately left because he didn't feel appreciated enough within the camp, basically. Um, I, I know he'll expect the possibility of having Zarco removed from from his from his outfit but from the ways Johan Zarco has been speaking about it and the way Lucio Giacinello seems to have been speaking about it I think Lucio would be more mad at losing Zarco than Zarco himself would be mad at being passed over for an uh, uh, Repsol ride Zarco sounds like LCR might still be okay and he may well feel that if they put Oliveira into the Repsol team right now then he just needs to outperform Oliveira and then he has a shot to, to make that seat his own for 2025. Um, Oliveira is the best of the options that seem available to me right now. He's His time at KTM maybe has been a little inconclusive, but he's a five-time Grand Prix winner in satellite rider clothing. Uh, of those five wins, only two were in the wet, three were in the dry, right? Some of them were slightly interesting wins in the dry I'll, I'll i'll give you that the the two and one that you know the red bull ring one the, the three three riders into one corner basically that one was a bit strange uh catalonia 21 that was fabio Quartararo arm pump right so yeah. so that that's a bit of an extenuating circumstance although i think it was already leading by that point or closing in on the lead it closing yeah closing yeah did dominate at, at portimao in in 20 He's, a, he's, a, he's an interesting rider. He's a, he's a good rider. I mean, he's a bit inconsistent in terms of form. Maybe maybe it's not worth the one-year rental, the money that you would have to spend to make all of this happen, potentially. But I, I absolutely see the reasoning of trying him out. And on Oliveira's side, I absolutely see the reasoning of wanting to be Mr. Big Shot at Honda instead of riding for a satellite Aprilia team. Makes total sense to me. If we rope Vinales in, which doesn't doesn't sound like something that's happening just it, it sounds like because you know Vinales was asked about the rumors on Thursday and he was being weird and cryptic about it which is which is the reason we're talking about it now because there's no not really been anything else other than a bit of rumor and Maverick being weird and cryptic about it but that might just be Maverick that might not be might not he, be he is evidence. weird and cryptic sometimes yeah yeah he's sometimes you know he just sometimes gives weird and cryptic answers even if there's not necessarily smoke there. It would make sense to me in the sense that, first of all, that's that's a great rider, and Honda does not have access to riders of that caliber 
at the moment. I'm <laughs> I'm not even sure that's like I know John Mir is a MotoGP champion and Maverick Vinales is extremely not. I'm not sure that John Mir is a better MotoGP rider and Maverick Vinales is far from it. Uh, far, I'm far from sure of that. Uh, and I think, I think Maverick might suspect or be a little bit maybe concerned that he's hit the ceiling of what what he can do on an Aprilia that's been molded and designed by Alicia Spargo. I because I it feels like he's performing well, but it feels like the next step that was supposed to come still isn't quite following. This weekend, I think. We'll get to this a little bit later, I suspect. But this weekend, I don't think it was the fastest Aprilia. He just was the Aprilia that kept things together and stayed on track as normal. And it still wasn't quite enough, even with the open goal of Jorge Martin's retirement, to, to bring home the win. So I, I could see why he would be potentially tempted. There, I do see the reason for there to be a bit of movement. And if, if Oliveira's head has been turned, I cannot blame him one bit. And I, I'm, I'm not sure I particularly appreciate Aprilia's indignation of, oh, what well, he's under contract. Nobody respects contracts anymore. It's about a GP. If you have a satellite rider who used to be a works rider, he's going to be trying to be a works rider again. Even if he's under a works contract, he's a satellite rider. He's not wearing the works clothes. He's not presumably getting the works accommodation, etc. blah, blah, blah. I don't know about that, but I suspect. Eh, I, I Honestly, the way this has happened and the way... Miguel seems to be going against the company line on Honda's approach. Tells me I tells me it might be happening, but let's see. Uh, and if it does happen, I I I don't I won't feel like it's a bit of nonsense or something, because also I think it is important to keep Lucio Cecchinello's team strong, even though there's now one other good option for LCR that I think a lot of us have been very impressed with this weekend. Yeah. So just before we go on to the LCR option. Um... There is one thing that that might weaken Lucio Cecchinello's bargaining position a little bit. Um, I had a conversation with someone this weekend, and it was one of those, it wasn't a, I've heard this is happening. It was just a, you know, what if this happened conversations that kind of, you know, links a few people. It, it means that there's a, someone else has thought about it, you know. Um, and the suggestion was, a lot of people think that Mark Marquez, we, we talked about Mark Marquez going to Grassini as a, a stopgap measure in the past. Um, and a lot of people seem more and more convinced that that is absolutely the case and that a certain Austrian manufacturer has already made an offer for the year after. Um, as potentially a Grassini Husqvarna team <laughs> that would see Mark Marquez not actually move the Grassini team switching from Ducati to full factory 2025 brand new KTM bikes on Husqvarna colors. If that is the case... And on the other KTM? Uh, uh, if, if Mark is on one of those Husqvarna is the other... But is still TBC at this point, I guess. Well, so, but, but Mark Marquez would not agree to a, a transformation of Grassini that leaves Alex Marquez yeah, yeah, on yeah. the outside looking but, in. But like I said, I don't think this is agreed to yet. Okay. But just the fact that there's suddenly people talking about Grissini KTM weakens Lucio Cecchinello's bargaining position. Because the, the chip that he's held, the, the thing that he's held over Honda is whole, has been for the last, you know, six months, well, I'll just go to KTM in 2025. And if that suddenly isn't as clear-cut a route, 
then maybe it gives Honda a bit more latitude to just tell them your satellite team do whatever you're told, like Matt wants them to. Um, <laughs> it, it you know it, it's just something that that complicates it. It doesn't even have to be true, and it, you know it could even be KTM spreading the rumor or Honda spreading the rumor to weaken his position because that's what teams do to you know get at people sometimes. But it's an option. Um, it is something that that you know makes Czech Canelo a slightly slightly less strong position, let's say. As Val hinted, though, we should we should we've got our own solution actually. Basically, this this is us pitching for who Chechenello should have next season, and it's it's a rider who's made the case himself as well. Uh, Fabio Di Antonio had a very good weekend again, and I asked you to mid race like, has he started looking better since he knew he was out of a ride? And you two have insisted he's just been getting better in very natural ways anyway. But he he has made the point that um, having lost his Grassini ride to Mark Marquez, he is available if Honda wants him, and he'd be well up for it. Good fit, really, isn't he? For for in normal circumstances, that is the kind of rider you could see ending up at a team like LCR. Yeah, I mean, I, I posted at one point in the race while he was fighting for fourth that he might as well be running a special livery that says, hire me Honda, because <laughs> it was just a perfect advertisement for himself. Um, so he, he's in a, a really difficult road in MotoGP. Um, as a little bit of context, his first season, his rookie year last year, was essentially completely wiped out as far as he's concerned because he also had a rookie crew chief the rookie crew chief couldn't help him do what he needed to do couldn't help him learn and i think he spent the whole season learning bad habits and then he got a new crew chief for this season who just happens to be juan mir's title winning crew chief frankie carcetti who's so good that he's sticking around next year to work with mark marquez so he's, he's a pretty talented bloke uh, um, and he has really helped Digentono. Digi is super open about that, about, you know, the, the schooling that he's had in how to ride a motorbike from Carcetti. But they've almost spent the first half of the season unlearning all the bad habits from last year before starting over again and, and sort of building them up into a better racer. We've seen it since the summer break. He's been looking stronger and stronger. Uh, and today was very much the highlight of that uh, with fourth place at the flag. Um, he's young, he's Italian, he's super well-spoken, he's very good with sponsors, he speaks fluent English, he would fit really well into Lucio Chacanello's team in any other circumstance, really. If we were in a, a kind of a semi-normal rider market, and he had been delivering, you know, po borderline podium contention results recently, um, I, I can absolutely see Chacanello moving to get him on board. So, you know, just send Zarco to the factory and, and stick uh, Digia into the team and everyone's happy. Uh, to be fair, I, I, with all of my heated rhetoric about why it makes sense to pursue Oliveira or Vinales or whatever, I'd be absolutely happy with that. Um, I have a lot of sympathy for Fabio Digia Antonio and he's a very affable character and one that I think we would be quite upset to lose out of MotoGP after just two seasons. Which is not to say that it won't have been warranted. Yeah, I want I want to make that very clear. There's a there's a line between sympathy and this shouldn't have happened. At no point am I making the argument that Grishini has unfairly moved to replace Fabio Di Antonio with one of the greatest riders who's ever lived and breathed, uh, or that I don't understand how it came to the situation where he was basically in a lame duck position for most of the season. 
two two years in MotoGP is a lot of years. Uh, he has been making progress, but it, it's sort of when he started in MotoGP, his very first test, I thought he looked really good, and then it didn't really feel like the first season at all delivered on that in any way, any sort of meaningful movement anywhere but backwards. This season, there's been movement, but it's been very sort of I wouldn't use the word gradual necessarily. It's like two steps forward, two steps back, one step forward, half a step back, one step forward, one step forward, one step back, that kind of thing. And recently it's been like, re- it's finally arrived somewhere. And this weekend has been very, very good. Uh, but two years is a lot of years. And these are the best eight bikes on the MotoGP grid. I can I can see why he's out. Even if Mark wasn't available, I can, I can see why he's out. Uh, Maybe he would have held on to the seat just because nobody else in Moto2 is making a particularly super compelling case, apart from Pedro Costa, who's basically got the title sewn up, but also has an employment elsewhere in MotoGP. But two seasons is a lot of seasons, and at a certain point, I am sympathetic with the point of running out of time, but also you do run out of time. This is the the most elite motorcycle racing sport. There has to be turnover. Which stinks, but that's that's also part of it. It's also part of why we enjoy it. But if circumstances do turn out in the way that he has the opportunity and he gets the LCR gig, I think it would be really cool. And I really hope he, if he does end up there, I really hope he gels well with that with that bike and doesn't just spend writing off LRC two one three V one after another like certain other riders are doing right now. Uh, yeah, it'd be nice. It'd be nice, but equally, if he's off the grid, I think I will also understand that. And I, it would be very then cool if he finds some sort of decent alternate form of high, high success or high paid or both employments in one of the other championships. Uh, you can see how much this meant to him today. He was, I think, in tears next to his bike uh, in Park for May, where he was as the, the lead independent rider. Uh, he deserved something nice. Clearly, he's worked very hard. Uh, hope hope the rest of the season like this, and I hope that means that there's a good get coming for 2023. I mean, this this won't happen in any in any way. Go on, so you you go first, Simon. You've had a brainwave by the look of it. I, I'm just going to throw in something really quickly because it really stood out to me today on a point that Val has just made. Um, one and two, the the only championship in which they're one and two. Uh, Repsol Honda currently lead the falls. Uh, statistics for the year with 23 and 20. Yeah. So they've had 43 crashes just in the Repsol Honda garage this year. And and they're they're in a they're in a great fight against Tech 3 Gas Gas for finishing last in the team standings. They're four points apart. Tech 3 is currently four ahead. Well, uh, this this sort of thing comes back. This is essentially my logic in being a bit moany about Honda not just sticking Zarko on the bike and and getting on with it. Like as you, as we mentioned, Val, when you kind of recited Oliveira's wins, yes, that is a guy who can like come from third to first in the final corner. Not exactly amazing move. They took themselves wide, but he can win a race in that style. He can dominate like he did at Portimao on a satellite bike. He can win in the wet, make everyone else look useless in the wet. And he can, that Barcelona win, that was like really making the most of the developments KTM was introducing around that time and looking like a proper champion caliber rider. Well, the rest of the time, everything that happens in between those wins, what is what is going on there? It's all over the place, which is fine because these are humans, and this is a, this is a sport that demands a lot of 
those human individuals and everyone on this championship is a bit up and down. But I just feel like Oliveira's graph is just so all over the place, which is fine if you're putting him into a stable, calm, nurturing team who can make the best out of the high points. But a team that is currently t- topping the crash statistics, fighting not to be last in the team. It's, it, like I say, big orange mess. This is not the, the, the team you put that rider in when you've got a smoother solution. And to kind of com- complete that circle... I'm not looking at Digia's record and going, what a travesty it would be if he fell off the grid. You know, okay, Maito 3, he was in among Martin, Bezecchi, and Bastianini in the championship there in, in, his, in his final year, I think. Uh, his Moto 2 record was kind of like, well, that's all right. He's got a win or, yeah. Certainly, when he, when he got the Grassini ride in the first place, I was like, okay, fine. Don't have strong feelings one way or the other. And for a rider who's kind of fine whatever to exit MotoGP, having got a pole, had a top four finish, yeah, or, yeah, fine. No offense taken. But when there's a team that needs a solution, I'd, I'd probably like think him and if Zarko has to stay at LCR, at least like it'd be great if this was a world where Takanakagami could actually lose the other seat having not done anything with it for quite a few years now and put Digio on the second LCR bike. I understand the reasons why that won't happen. But Yeah, the Idemitsu sponsorship for famous yeah, would, Japanese would, rider Fabio Di Giannantonio. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. That is complete, completely a completely impractical solution. But um, no, but I see it. I see yeah. it. Yeah, you, 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 Nakagami for as much as, as much as he was impressive in 2020 in those circumstances. Yeah, it's been a long time since he really looked like he should be on on the MotoGP grid full time. How does it just put Nakagami in the Repsol team? Clearly, I, is the Repsol team the A team anymore? <laughs> I mean, they're being outscored in the, in yeah, the points yeah, by true. LCR. So <laughs> who knows? They've won fewer races this year. So just. Give him a year at Repsol for all the service as a thank you and then go hard for free agents in 2025. The only acceptable ending to this for me, if if they do put someone other than Zarco on the Repsol bike, is that Zarco wins at Austin next season for LCR and then everything's fine. Yeah, might as well end the season there, basically. That's <laughs> So, as is often the case, we've had a couple of really big storylines that have dominated this podcast, Championship Battle and the fallout of the biggest rider in the current era moving teams are sensible things to dominate a podcast with. So I've invited Simon and Vel to do kind of fastest finger first on their hands up buttons to get some any other business into the final few minutes. Oh, Val has won. So Val, what else do you think we need to debate before we close this episode? This is not something to debate. It's, just, it's amazing that three of the four Aprilias went for the soft rear tire in today's race and all of them immediately ruined their lace race hilariously. <laughs> the only Aprilia that made the normal tire choice ended up in the middle of the podium. For some reason, Laetitia Spargo, who apparently was spooked by a dodgy performance in the Sunday warm-up, went with a soft rear. And on a weekend where, honestly, for much of the weekend, he looked like he should be winning the main race. Like he had a fair bit of pace in his pockets at a low grip track where the Aprilia seemed to be going well, bolted on the soft rear, which ran out of grip immediately. And he barely, barely came home in, in 10th place. And it's just, it's one of those Aprilia sort of things where like, I, I can see how this kind of thing happens and the bike's good, but this is, this is the sort of operational situation where, I have my doubts that at certain other factories, something like this is possible. Nobody else was picking that soft rear. (laughs) Defeat snatched from the jaws of victory. It could be a previous motto at this point. Um, That was a stupid decision by Alesh in particular. I I have no idea why they did that. Yeah, it was one of those weekends where it seemed, when Aprilia's on it, it seems like Aprilia's going to be completely unbeatable. 
and then it finds a way to, to tread to, to either actually see that through and win or to completely tread on its tail and that was this is one of those I, I do feel like looking through practice some even till that late Marini movement in qualifying if it wasn't for that tire choice and Ducati starting like missiles this could have been a pair of Aprilia one twos this weekend really couldn't it based on actual performance yeah it was there honestly I'm I think Vinales would have been the weak link there in terms of race pace. That's, I think, honestly, this did look like a weekend where they should win based off Friday, and he didn't come close at all. And again, it's just, it's just, it was, it was strange to pick the soft rear, especially because again, he he barely ran it in the sprint because he tucked the front immediately while trying to overtake Brad Binder and took both of them down, and then we had a mini discussion over whether that was a move worthy of a penalty which the FIM stewards decided no Simon decided no so a yeah. rare moment of unity between the, the best of friends now <laughs> yeah. I I still I feel yes so I have to be on the record here I think that's 100% a penalty but also I was too tired at that point to care and maybe I'm feeling a bit of second wind <laughs> go for it he, oh, he, he we went go. for an overtake and he he went for an overtake and he tucked the front and he took out another rider and ruined his race it was a miscalculation because everybody knew that offline it's dirty and he could not make the corner cleanly. And as a result, another rider is off the track. I do not care whether the impact happened after or before he tucked the front. It does not matter. It was a botched overtake that took out another rider. How, what universe is that different to the other stuff? What universe is that different to what Brad Binder did today for the two penalties? Just because Binder managed to hit the other riders before he crashed. Ah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Anyway, I'm gonna, I'm, let's, let's try to stick with this for a second because I was uh, weirdly uh, no. I, was, I was driving somewhere Saturday night and I, and it was this stewards debate was in my head and the fact that so often on the podcast I'm the one who's going yeah whatever let them raise one penalty a year if someone really does something bad and I kind of I think it's because I have general faith in riders as sensible humans not wanting to hurt themselves that i think when you take yourself out of a race that's enough of a deterrent to yeah. not do a move like that again if you can possibly help it and i kind of think i i understand that you've still taken someone else out but I, my, my sort of moral stance there is that's a little message to you to not break your own legs because in in motorbike racing it's harder to take somebody else out and continue unscathed yourself than it is in car racing because because of the whole body dynamics of it so I think th it doesn't actually work in practice because you see you do see the same riders riding dangerously and causing crashes time and again <laughs> uh, across all classes. Yeah. But I, I think my my kind of my core stance on why I'm like no, don't give them penalties is because I think they'll learn their lesson from having smashed their leg that time or, or whatever. But maybe obviously that is that is just too too naive. Val, I have to ask whenever whenever Matt said you see the same riders causing penalties over and over again, which name come into your head right away? Oh, I don't, I don't want to. It's like, it's the only, is it really the only way that Jeremy Alcoba is going to come up on one of these, these episodes? <laughs> that no, that's okay. As long as we both went to Jeremy Alcoba, it's I fine. We can move on. I don't feel very good about that. I don't feel I have enough of a grasp on Jeremy Alcoba's career to just go, hey, Jeremy uh, Alcoba is famous for crashing feel, into people. I feel like Alonso, Alonso Lopez and Alberto Sura probably feel worse about it today than Jeremy Alcoba. So. Yeah. I this is considered it's my public apology to Jeremy Alcoba. I have to be honest, it is the name that came in. I'm not actually sure if I'm factually ready to defend that opinion, other than I've seen him penalized recently a fair bit. What he got his third penalty of the year today for knocking people off. So 
And that and that kind of immediately disproves my riders and drivers learn from hurting themselves. They'll do that less in future theory, frankly, doesn't it? In in, in a case, at least. Um, another piece of business uh, from today's race was KTM's weird kind of issues that seem to have appeared in the last few rounds for them. Um, I don't know whether it's aero or whether it's something to do with the way that the, the chassis is working at the minute, but it seems they've got a little bit of an issue on corner exit with uh, the bike kind of shaking its head a little bit and, and you know vibrating as they get on the gas. And what that's doing is the old issue that we used to get places like Michello in turn one, it pushes the brake pads back against the, the side of the calipers. You go into the next corner, you try to brake and nothing happens. And that's what happened to Paulo Spagaro today. That's why he crashed. It happened to Brad Binder. That's why he smashed into Luca Marini. Um, yeah, it's uh, it, it's a bit of, it seems to be a bit of a recurring problem because Paul said it's also why he crashed back at Misano a few weeks ago. And it seems to be something that they're, they're working fairly heavily with uh, Brembo at the minute to try and find some sort of a solution to, yeah, to make it a bit easier, which normally involves fitting springs inside the calipers to keep the pads in place. But yeah, they're, they're working on something to try and make it better. You should say in that regard as well, we, we mentioned Bender getting a pair of long lap penalties. His response to that was massive apology, basically, wasn't it? He, was, he certainly wasn't disputing the fairness of those. No, he, he put his hands up and said, yeah. He's generally pretty good at both letting letting accidents slide when somebody does it to him and putting his hands up when when he is the offending party, which is to his credit. What isn't to his credit is I think he is overly ruthless in, in battle. Ooh. I do like that's a thing I've I feel like I've been noticing just generally on and off during his MotoGP career. I feel like he's more aggressive than the median rider and maybe more aggressive than I as a member of the audience, I'm, I'm comfortable with, and uh, today, okay, the the brake pads thing, I can't really fault him for, but the, the Oliveira crash, it just barged him out of the way. Just yeah, absolutely. It, yeah, it's that it's that kind of what you what you're thinking of, Val, kind of making moves where the other rider has to get out of the way to to pull them off. Yeah, well, it depends on the corner. I guess it depends on the, the like the layout yeah. of the corner and the situation, but it's. I also depends, I guess, on the mood that I've woken up in, which is not not great. <laughs> but you know, uh, final topic, I guess. Then, um, yeah, go on. It's time for one one more rider union. Oh yeah, let's 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 visit let's visit that. I'll set the scene a little bit. This has been something that's been mooted on and off for over a year, um, as various things over two the, years. The, over two years. Wow. Yeah. No, you're right. Yeah. The the sprint races were one of the main reasons this came up because that was kind of announced without the riders knowing it was coming and then it, it kind of went quiet for quite a while there was a mysterious meeting in the Barcelona paddock involving all the riders we thought that might be pulling the union together nothing actually happened and then this weekend it emerges that there's an announcement not not many weeks away that uh, uh, an equivalent of Formula One's Grand Prix Drivers Association is going to exist in MotoGP and Sylvain Gintoli has been tapped up to lead it which seems like a very sensible choice so Simon you're very pro-union in this regard um yeah good Many news regards. <laughs> yeah, as, as i completed that sentence i was like oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. um it, it's it's sensible it, it's something that they need they need a bit of collective bargaining power um and sylvan is the perfect person to lead it because super intelligent 
multiple languages, been there and done that, has the the badge of being a world champion to carry into it as a little bit of kudos. And there's people that you could appoint to the role. You know, I mentioned Raiders Union last night and everyone was immediately like, get Cal Crutchlow, get Cal Crutchlow. Wow, that would be Larry, terrible at it. <laughs> yeah, he'd go into the room and he'd punch Freddie Spencer and flip over the table on Carmelo and storm out having stolen like the bottle of wine from the, the bar. He's he's not the person for it. No, the points he would make while he was in the room would probably be absolutely correct, I'd imagine. But um, yeah, maybe, but maybe he, he delivered the most all the tact of a sledgehammer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Whereas Sylvan is is a much more diplomatic character while still being quite strong. So I think Sylvan's a real good choice for it. Uh, they've done really well to get him on board with it. Um, you know, some of the we spoke to some of the writers about it today, and some of them kind of you get the impression of just going along with it because the others have told them that they should. Uh, but then there's some that made really good points about how important it is. And and even more importantly for me, there's some have made really good points about how important it is for Moto2 and Moto3 riders to uh, have yeah. this sort of representation. You know, they yeah. the, the MotoGP grid looks at Moto2 and Moto3 riders getting thrown out halfway through the season, having their contracts ripped up, not getting paid their salaries. And they all remember whenever they were those kids and, and you know, how it can affect your career. Um so they've kind of come in and, you know, some of the some of the older wiser heads have said, we're not just doing this for us, we're doing this for everyone, um, which is quite laudable of them. And yeah, I hope it turns into something, I hope it turns into something that, that helps make the sport a bit fairer and a bit safer. Yeah. I think I think a handful of them are particularly uncomfortable with the word union specifically, which we should definitely capitalize on by repeatedly calling them like, proletarians of the world <laughs> unite and saying they have nothing to lose but their chains and all of that but kind of stuff. working class. Yeah. Uh, but no, it's like, it's just a great development. It's uh, like Simon, I too am <laughs> pro-union in, in this one aspect. And as Matt implied, no other aspect. That's a joke. Uh, I am, I think it, it only makes sense that this group of riders that sometimes feels underrepresented in terms of their wishes and in terms of being able to really press on the championship what they want and more even more specifically not so much press what they want but have this clear communication they're all reasonably happy with the friday safety commission that not all of them do attend which is another problem having a more formalized way where the governing body or the team's body can communicate with somebody who then will make it their business to convey it to all the riders and canvas the rider opinion and present this is what riders as a unified body generally think about this. Oh, of course, there'll be different vary, uh, opinions within that. And of course, there'll be you know search of self-gain or just completely different philosophies in how people look at racing that is inevitable. But it's just it's good to systematize that a bit more and... I'm, I I welcome it wholeheartedly, and I'm definitely going to call them proletarians. <laughs> you, you know how there was that um, crazy theory that Mark Marquez was going to buy Grassini and turn it into his own Marquez Brothers team? Would that count as the workers seizing the method of production? <laughs> it, would okay. count, it, would, it would count as that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're not making niche communist jokes, I know, I know. <laughs> Goodness, that's, uh, yes, I've lost my thread slightly with that one. <laughs> I, I, 
I, I agree. It's uh, here. I, I don't agree that this is turning much few rides into communists. I do like the fact that this is t- them taking a bit of responsibility as well. Like there's a, they are they are grown ups. They are influential. Don't moan about things. Get yourselves organised and just have a sensible conversation about it and make, and make your points clearly and in a reasonable manner. And then then you've got a better chance, hopefully, of getting listened to when there are issues that affect you. I, I hope I hope it does turn MotoGP riders into communists and we just have communist MotoGP races where every position scores the same amount of points. You just take the full amount of points and divvy it up by every position. And then there are there's no battle for position because it's, you know, equality of opportunity and outcome. So you just you finish where you can, you start where you can, and there's no battle because you just let people through. <laughs> this has gone off the rails. There's already enough red bikes in the grid like to figure out the difference between gas gas and Ducati. <laughs> oh my goodness. Right. I think the any other business section is concluded, <laughs> which has worked fairly well in terms of getting through a lot of topics very quickly at the end of the episode, but has gone massively off the wall. This has never happened uh, again. Well, Matt will I, never allow this we'll to happen. See. Maybe there'll be some more rules attached to it. I am gonna I'm gonna make you do one thing. You're not gonna enjoy doing that. We're gonna fi- we're gonna finish on a on a Larry prediction. So just one one week till the next race, and we're back in your ears after Phillip Island. Uh, Val and Simon, I'd like you each to predict, and I'll do this too. Who is the championship leader after Phillip Island? I reckon that one is potentially quite easy to predict. What is their points margin? Val, you stuck your hand up first, so go for it. Well, eighteen points is a lot, so it'll still be Banyaya, but I think I think by fewer, I think ten. Simon, I I think it'll be Bagnaya, and I think it's going to be eighteen like it is now. Ooh. Double DNF for both riders in both races. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wipeout. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I know uh, it is, I, but I'm, I'm just, yeah. Maybe it's wishful thinking because I like a storyline. My prediction is going to be Martin again by seven points. So join us next week, listeners. Thank you for your time and patience with this one and how it ended. Join us next week and we'll see how right or wrong we are in the wake of the Australian Grand Prix. Thank you for your time and see you then. The Athletic.